So we're in Genesis chapter 16. We're continuing uh, a sermon series that we've been going since, I think, September of last year. So it looks like we're going to be in Genesis until like 2032, but um, I'm here for it. <laughs> we'll be taking a little break after Easter and spending some time in the New Testament to come up for air, but we're going to just get everything we can out of this. And it turns out it's incredibly rich. Big surprise. So you can be turning to Genesis 16. Uh, in the meantime, you know, I just want to point out that there's some words and phrases that we use that can be interpreted positively or negatively entirely based on tone and context, right? So one phrase would be, you're so sensitive. So I might tell Ryan as a compliment, you're so sensitive. He's a good man. He's just thoughtful, right? Or he might say to me, you are so sensitive <laughs> as a criticism, right? And I think it's actually quite warranted. But there are lots of phrases like that that can go either way, right? Depending on the context and the tone. Well, there's a phrase in the Bible like that that comes to mind when I think about the story we're about to read of Abram and Sarai and this Egyptian servant, Hagar. And the phrase that comes to mind is, you are mine. Abram and Sarai don't say that with their lips about Hagar, but they say it with their actions. It can be menacing, unkind, objectifying, or it can be something else. Uh, Isaiah 43.1, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Some might say it with menace in their voice. The Lord says it with warmth and compassion and intimacy. So through the good news of Jesus, seen through our passage today, we have the opportunity to be freed from all the menacing your minds in this world and receive the warm embrace of the creator of the universe who redeems us and calls us by name. So let me pray for the Lord's help. Lord, you said, fear not, and so we bring you our fears and ask for the peace of the Holy Spirit through your word today. You said you've redeemed us, and so we bring you all of our sins and failings and ask for grace and forgiveness and truth in Christ. And you said you've called us by name and that we belong to you, and so we're asking for you to make yourself known to us through your word with your saving power today. For the glory of Christ. Amen. All right, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, Genesis 16, 1 through 6. If you have another Bible version, that's great. We like lots of Bible versions here, just so you know. I just happen to have, you know, invested in ESV Bibles for myself. For myself. That's why we read them mostly. Genesis 16, 1 through 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. 
and he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is the word of God. Now, this is an incredibly subversive and surprising story in Genesis because we're 12, four, four chapters deep into the Abraham cycle, these stories about Abraham and Sarah. And in the middle of these stories, all about the father of our faith, we have this episode that's not about them. They're not the point. The plot does move along, and there's important details in there, but the center of the story revolves around this woman, Hagar. Now, Hagar was probably acquired in Egypt back in chapter 13 when they sojourned there during a time of famine. And if the word acquired seems like something you do with a piece of property and not a human, then you're listening. But that's how they treated her, didn't they? Like an object. And this is important to face into. Because a lot of abuse and mistreatment has occurred since this day by the family of Abraham. And sometimes even in the name of God. And I don't want to shy away from that. We should mourn it, not take it lightly. We should lament. We should ask God for mercy. And we should seek his grace and help in moving closer to Christ with integrity and gentleness and respect. So under this uh, first heading, number one is the invisible servant. We're going to look at three different ways that Hagar was mistreated by Abram and Sarai, and I promise that there's light at the end of this tunnel. The three ways is that she's stripped of her dignity, she's stripped of her identity, and she's functionally invisible to them other than as a piece of property. So we're just going to look at that. We're going to face into it. So firstly, she's undignified. Now in Genesis 3, 13 chapters ago, the first temptation story, the story we all know from the Bible, with, you know, Adam and Eve and the snake and all of that, Eve was the one who took this fruit and gave it to her husband. Do you remember what Eve wanted? What moved the needle for her on getting her to take what God said was off limits? Well, she wanted to be like God. She wanted to have her eyes open. She wanted to know good and evil. And those are things that in, in a way, God would have been really pleased to give her in his own way, in his own time. Christ-likeness. Maturity, wisdom. God wasn't holding out on them. But he said, the way to get those is my way, not your way. And I'll give them in my time. But instead of waiting on the Lord, instead of trusting the Lord, Eve took matters into her own hands. She saw that the forbidden fruit was good, and she took it and gave it to her husband. And he listened to the voice of his wife, and everything was downhill from there. Now, this story, Genesis 16, that we just read, is written with the same constellation of keywords and phrases and images 
so that we as the reader come to it and go, gosh, this sounds familiar. This, is, this sounds like a Genesis 3 kind of story, like a temptation narrative. And it is. What Sarai wants is a good thing. The Lord had promised Abram that they would have children, an offspring, who would you know, develop into this huge nation, as many as the stars in the heavens, and be a blessing to the whole world. So they necessarily would have children, but she was barren. So instead of continuing to wait on the Lord, she had done so for many years, but she hit a limit and she took matters into her own hands. And when we do that, like the Lord's work in our way, instead of the Lord's work in the Lord's way, uh, people become collateral damage. And Hagar was treated like a thing, not a who. And she was passed from wife to husband like an object. Sarai thought that she could get a child by giving her servant girl to her husband. You notice it was all about what Sarai could get. Maybe I will obtain a child. And Hagar was stripped of her dignity as she became caught up in someone else's scheme to get what they want at her expense. She has no agency. She's not asked if she wants to. She gets no vote. It's grim. This was, however, an established cultural practice in the ancient Near East. Uh, you can find it in the Code of Hammurabi even. But that doesn't make it okay. That doesn't make it less horrifying, frankly. It doesn't make it any less wrong. This Egyptian woman, this invisible servant, was stripped of her dignity and treated like property as this family gave in to temptation and chose self-sufficiency instead of trust. So she was undignified. Then she was unnamed. She was unnamed. Look at how Sarai and Hagar speak, I'm sorry, Sarai and Abram speak of Hagar. Sarai says, go into my servant. Then it says she gave her to Abram as a wife, but when things don't go well, Abram says, your servant is in your hands, not my wife, not Hagar. She's only known by her function, by her utility. I wonder if they even knew her name. Names are really important things in any culture. And it's especially true of these sort of ancient Mesopotamian, Egyptian cultures, the ancient Near East world. And it's especially, especially true in the Bible. Names are incredibly profound things. God specifically names his creation. Adam names the animals as an act of imaging God, as an act of royalty and honor. Adam names Eve because she was the mother of the living, and so on. Each one of these acts of naming, and you could go through Genesis 1 to 16 and kind of make note of who gets named and why, and how does that shape the story, right? Cain is named for the word got or acquired because she's finally got the son that she wanted. Abel is named after vapor and breath like his life was. He was here one day and gone the next, etc. These names are incredibly important things, and the moment of naming is important, because naming a thing bestows honor on a thing. 
I, I was trying to remember if this has happened to me in my childhood or if it was one of those memories that you, or like a imaginative story that you think about so much that you think it was a memory. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, did I dream it or did it happen? Um, but you know, the, you know sort of the trope of some kids that find a stray dog and you bring it home and the grumpy dad is like, don't name it. Because if you name it, we have to keep it. You'll grow attached to it. And then when we get rid of it, it'll be so much harder. Naming a thing gives it a place in our lives. It gives it a place in our hearts. It says we exist together. Names give dignity. And names and identity go hand in hand. Your name, <laughs> this is a terrible illustration, but bear with me, it does work. Imagine the home screen of your phone, right? You've got all these app icons. It's not the app itself. It's just a thing that like a little simple, profound, designed thing that represents all the sort of complexity and nuance of the actual app and program that lies beneath it. Your name is like that. You know, I am Gandalf, and Gandalf means me. <laughs> Names are important. And they couldn't even use hers. My servant. Your servant. When we give in to temptation and we let sin rule our lives, we let sin rule our hearts, we stop trusting God, we take matters in our own hands, we often begin to strip people around us of their dignity and to lose sight of their identity and value. People become useful, not incredible, not wonderful. I was talking to somebody the other day who said, I love listening to interviews because I'm just so interested in hearing other people's stories and experiences. And I thought, there's a person with their eyes open, right? Someone who's maintained a curiosity about others because others matter. Let's not lose that. So she was undignified, unnamed, and lastly, she was unseen. Um, I know all the girls in the room will, you know, the little, the kids will answer yes, but have you guys seen Encanto? Movie Encanto? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a great movie. I loved Encanto. Near the end, there's this character um, who, there's this, uh, one of the cousins, Dolores, has a crush on this guy and she's unnoticed by him. And the whole movie, this guy doesn't take any notice of her. He just has eyes for her sister instead or cousin or something. And finally, at the end of the movie, she sort of displays her noble character and, and how kind and caring she is. And this guy says, Dolores, I see you. Do you know what it feels like for someone to see you finally? To take notice of you? Or do you know what it's like to not be seen? Hagar knows the feeling of invisibility in this story. No one's taking notice of her. No one's treating her like a person. And few things make a person feel so small and worthless as being unseen. Now, I'm not on social media anymore. It's okay if you are. But I realized at one point, I don't need Twitter to keep telling me what dumpsters are on fire and which Christians caused the fires. It's sad, but it's true, isn't it? 
the wrongs and the hurts, the dignity stripped from people by people bearing the name of Christ is appalling. We should mourn it. This story feels so weirdly modern for being so incredibly ancient. Some of you, it's, this isn't theoretical. For maybe many of you in this room, that sort of, um, you know, the word church hurts almost too light of a thing. Do you know church, like, abuse at the hands of church leadership is more like abuse at the hands of a parent than anything else? Because you're supposed to be able to trust your shepherd to care for you. And so you, you're vulnerable. And when they abuse that power, it's one of the grossest evils in this world, in my opinion. So if this isn't theoretical for you, I'm sorry. And some of you may be in sort of a wilderness right now. Um, you might still be angry. You might have been recently mistreated. Maybe you feel like you're out of options. We need God to take notice. We need God to see. And we need him to come find us in that wilderness. And we need the gospel. Because the gospel is a lot more than just you're freed from the wrath of God that your sins deserve. It's more than that. It's not less than that. Praise God. There's also a freedom from the wrongs done to you. So let's explore that more. Point number two, the God who sees. And we're going to read the second half of Genesis 16, starting in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water, that's Hagar, in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. It's not an insult. It means he's going to be free like the ancient onagers, not in servitude. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now, before we continue, I want to pause a moment and address an elephant in the room. In verse 9, the angel of the Lord tells Hagar to return to her mistress and submit to her. We, we're not afraid of the Bible. We can face into that and deal with that, can't we? 
do not, please, do not take this as permission to send people back to abusive situations to their harm. We do not do that. Let me quickly give you a few reasons why we can't use this passage to justify that terrible behavior, okay? First of all, we know from Genesis 21 in several chapters that the situation that God was sending them back to was actually going to become a a good one. God knew. Abram would come to love and care for and cherish Hagar and Ishmael. He was grieved when they were sent away. And he had 13 years, Ishmael did, of growing up in this house, being cared for and provided for in this family of God. Now, we couldn't know that, right? If it wasn't the angel of the Lord in that scenario, if it was just Joe Schmo saying, go back, he wouldn't know, but God knew, which makes this unique. Second, this is narrative typology. Okay? It's not a prescriptive story of how to treat abuse victims. That's not why this is here. It's a nuanced, complex narrative that, like everything else in the Bible, points to Jesus. In other words, if we're coming to this with our checklist of, like, please tell me how to live rightly so that I can be accepted by God, that's not what this is about. It's about Jesus. The man who had set his face like flint to march up to Jerusalem and suffer abuse by the children of Abraham for us so that we wouldn't have to. So it's narrative typology. It's about Jesus. Third, this is the angel of the Lord who speaks for Yahweh in the first person. Okay? Three ways to take that. Some people think it is God himself. Some people think it is the pre-incarnate Christ. Some people think it is a messenger speaking for God with incredible authority. Either way, only when the God of the universe shows up in some way and says something like this, does it make any sense. So just to be very clear, if you have a friend who is in an abusive marriage or relationship or work situation or whatever, and a church leader like me says to them, go back and endure abuse, you can ignore them. And you can come send them to me. We'll have a talking to. If God himself shows up, different scenario, okay? Uh, Lastly, Hagar knows all this to be true. Because when God says, go back, she says, you're the God who looks after me. Her response shows that she was cared for, not mistreated by God. That's important. Now, that may have just raised 20 more questions than it answered. That's okay. Um, I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) I mean, I am today after church. But, you know, (laughs) I'm around and you know how to reach me. We can have conversations about this. But for now, let's, let's go back and kind of review, right? So Sarai and Abram mistreated Hagar, and in their mistreatment, she was undignified, she was unnamed, and she was unseen. But the Lord finds her out in the wilderness. It says the angel of the Lord found her by the well or the spring. That's not a find of accidental discovery. That's a word 
of I've been looking for you. There you are. The Lord finds her and dignifies her, calls her by name and sees her. So let's just talk about those in order. Dignified. This is the, I guess, subpoint 2A, right? Uh, where Sarai and Abram had stripped her of her dignity, treated her like an object, the Lord restores her dignity. Verse 7, she's out in the wilderness, and the angel of the Lord found her because she was worth finding to him. An Egyptian servant with no status, no standing, no wealth, who knows what her history is. She's basically a single mother now. She will be. She's worth finding. She's worth looking for in God's eyes. And you know what's crazy is this is the first instance in the Bible of the angel of the Lord. Do you know that? Profound character. I mean, angel of the Lord, when he shows up in the Old Testament, we sit up and we pay attention because God himself is doing something remarkable with his people. And the first time he shows up on the scene is to this Egyptian servant fleeing a situation of mistreatment and abuse. Hagar is dignified and honored by the appearance of God through his special messenger. So she stands among the ranks of Jacob, Moses, Joshua. She's given dignity, remarkable dignity. And she's dignified by God by being the only person in all of the Bible to name God. That either takes incredible audacity or incredible intimacy. It reminds me of the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair. She wouldn't, of course, presume to rename him. God has a name. He is who he is. But it's as if she's saying, you know, others might know you as Yahweh or El Shaddai or El Elyon or God or whatever. But to me, to me, you'll always be El Roy, the God who sees it's sweet. The Lord bestowed such dignity on Hagar that she receives a patriarch's promise. You know, the, this promise of like having the, the offspring multiplied, all of that, right? That big promise is given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then Israel embodies that promise, but it's also given to this Egyptian woman. Now it's not with the same point. The Christ isn't going to come from her, but it's a profound blessing and a profound promise that lifts up and dignifies this woman. So, all right, that's dignified. God dignifies Hagar. Second, she's named. Sarai and Abram call her by her household function, strip her of her name. The angel of the Lord shows up and for the first time in the Bible, addresses someone by name. He didn't, in the narrative, right? In the Bible, you can't find a passage where God shows up and says, Adam, or Noah, or Abram, he says, Hagar. When the angel of the Lord said her name, it must have fallen from his lips like honey. It must have been so reviving as someone who's been stripped of their identity to hear your name, like living water to one dying of thirst. Is incredible. 
by calling her by name. He's bestowing on her dignity and honor and nobility. He's restoring her personhood. It's, it's like he's giving her her life back. She's never met this God before that we know of. There's no story of her, you know, having been trained in the ways of the Lord. She might know him, might not know him at all, but he knows her. He knows her name and he calls her by name. Lastly, she's seen where Hagar was invisible Aside from by function and utility, she's seen by God. Let's read again verses 11 to 14. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand shall be against everyone, everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well, well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. So the Lord Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, the one who inhabits eternity and dwells in the high and holy place, takes notice of Hagar. He hears her affliction. Did you catch that? The angel of the Lord says, because the Lord has heard your affliction. She didn't pray. She groaned. God saw and God heard and God knew. It's the same language as when God decided to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. It's a phrase of compassion. So to Sarai, she was invisible till useful, but then she was seen by God, and she names him the God who sees. And she's mar she says, truly here I have seen him who sees me. Now she's marveling at two things. One, that she's seen God and is alive <laughs> to tell the tale. That's incredible. It speaks to his glory and majesty. And two, that the God of the universe sees her. He looks after her. He cares for her. So the gospel is not less than we've sinned against God, but Jesus pays for those sins and takes the wrath of God so we don't have to endure that. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. The gospel is also Jesus submitting to mistreatment in order to free you from sins and wrongs done to you. Because when we're mistreated, when we're undignified, we're unnamed, we're unseen, we can be enslaved, in a way, to a, a false identity or enslaved to that sort of anonymity. We begin to feel that we really are worthless. You know the voice in your head that says, you know, derogatory things about yourself? Like, oh, I wish I weren't so fill in the blank, whatever your thing is, I've got lots. But you know when that voice shifts to speaking in the second person? Like, oh, you are so fill-in-the-blank. That's what happens with, when an identity is enslaved. But if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. The most worthy person in the universe has dignified you.
says, you're worth finding. He's named you. And he's seen you. So in Christ, your identity is not your past. It's not the wrongs that have been done to you. You are not the sum total of your failures, and you are not defined by the failures of others. In Christ, your royalty. Not because of your own merit, but because of his. Yeah. I mean, that, that patriarchal promise that Hagar receives, it's a, it's a promise of royalty. Princes are going to come from you. Kingdoms. So in a way, this is a Cinderella story, isn't it? You know, Cinderella. It's not her name. <laughs> She's called that because she sits in the ashes. She's this unseen, unnamed, undignified servant girl to an abusive stepmother who becomes royalty. There's another Cinderella story in the Bible, sort of, that this one reminds me of, and this is the woman of Sychar in John chapter 4. I think it's one of the most striking stories ever. Uh, the woman of Sychar, John 4, if you know it, he meets this woman at a well. Like the spring, it's the same word that the angel of the Lord meets uh, Hagar at in Genesis 16. So as I wrap up this sermon, I want to point out two things about sort of the, the intersection of those two stories. So first, what happens when a prince um, meets a woman in enchanted slumber and gives her a kiss? What happens? She wakes up, yeah. Only in stories, in the real world, that's not appropriate at all. <laughs> but we know the trope. <laughs> we know the trope, right? Sleeping Beauty, the kiss, she wakes up. What happens in a story when someone makes a wish and then a fairy shows up? The wish is granted, right? We know these tropes, these type scenes. We know if these things happen in a story, we're thinking about the expected result that's going to come because we know how stories work. Well, do you know what happens in the Bible when a man meets a woman at a well? Um, Abram, Abraham's servant later, when Isaac is grown, goes in search of a wife and he meets Rebecca at a well. And then they get married. Isaac and Rebecca get married. Jacob, Isaac's son, goes off and at a well he meets Rachel. And that ends in marriage. Moses leaves Egypt and meets his wife Zipporah at a well. And they get married. So I think you get the idea. Not to say that every single time a well is involved, they're going to get married. It's meant to point us to marriage. We're thinking in married, you know, marriage categories here. So the angel of the Lord shows up to Hagar at a well, calls her by name and gives her a promise like Abram's promise. And Jesus shows up to the woman of Sychar at a well and promises that he can give her rivers of living water so that she'll never thirst again. We're learning something about the bride of Christ. Jesus comes to the oppressed, the lowly, the downcast, the wilderness wanderers, and invites them to become a part of the bride of Christ. He offers them royalty. Lastly, Hagar is named, specifically as we've talked about extensively. What was the name of the woman in John chapter 4? 
We don't know. She was unnamed. Now, I don't know why, but I wonder if she remains nameless as a perpetual insert name here for you and I to put our names there because we're not the worthy ones. We're not the clean ones. We're people of the wilderness. The, the wilderness of lives shaped by our own sins and bad choices and shaped by others' sins and bad choices too. And in the wilderness, God finds us, redeems us, dignifies us, makes us royalty. Let me read Isaiah 43.1 again as I close. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the good shepherd. And you care perfectly for those in your charge. And when we're lost and wandering in the wilderness, you'll leave everything behind to come find us. And you proved that by becoming a human. So we praise you. And we love you. Thank you for finding us. Thank you for calling us by name. Amen. Amen.